Come to me, all you that are weary and are carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Matthew 11's classic invitation to find rest in Christ has comforted countless souls. These last couple of years have been heavy and burdensome, so it's an invitation we can hear with new ears today. My name is Steve West, and I serve as senior pastor of Jacksonville First United Methodist Church, and I'm glad to share some reflections on this week's readings today. I hope that it'll give us a little insight and nudge us to grow in the Spirit of God. Mostly, I hope that it brings comfort uh, to our souls. Now, I noticed a theme as I read the readings for this week, and it lit my Methodist DNA up. Uh, Those of us who follow Wesley believe in the balance of the heart and the hands, the balance of personal holiness and social holiness. I've always said that we have two strands of tradition blended together uh, in Methodism or in Wesleyan faith. It's the evangelical strand, that personal relationship with Christ being so important, and that liturgical strand. Uh, We're part of a community of faith, living the values of the kingdom of God with all the social justice implications that the gospel requires and that the worship and liturgy leads us to. So um, this is kind of where where the balance is and one of the reasons, one of the many reasons, but one of the fundamental reasons I love being United Methodist and love being Wesleyan. There's a balance embedded here. So I'd like to chew on that with you today because it just jumped out at me in the readings for this week. We're not going to cover all the readings, but in several of the readings. Now, the most beloved phrase that popped out is the one I started with today. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I'd like you to consider that there's two parts to that that I've never really thought about or noticed before. Come to me, and all you who are weary. That's the two parts. Come to me, and all who are weary. Me, and all. First of all, we're, our faith is centered around the person of Jesus Christ. And second, there's, there's this overarching theme of radical inclusivity of God in the scriptures. As, uh, as I write this and prepare for today, it's, it's Martin Luther King's uh, observance. And I'm, I'm, I'm recognizing how this fits. And I suppose I'm reading it because of what's going on um, as well. But I've often said racism is not fundamentally a political issue. It's a gospel issue. Jesus' regard for Gentiles and Samaritans against all social odds uh, is deeply embedded in the gospels. The book of Acts is, well, the overarching theme is how this value was instilled in the early church despite resistance. Some of the things, frankly, that we get upset about these days are split up over these days— Issues like abortion and the diversity of human sexuality, they aren't even mentioned in the Gospels. But addressing racism is central to the Gospel. Uh, you don't read very far in any section do you see regard for Gentiles and Samaritans in the work of Jesus and the prophecy about Jesus even before then. And certainly in the book of Acts, how this value is instilled in the early church, despite all the resistance they had to that It's both religious resistance and racial resistance in the Gospels and the book of Acts. 
that's everywhere. I'm proud of our bishop in conference for speaking against racism. Of course, I've learned nobody says they're racist. As a white male, I know all the mental calisthenics that we can use to dismiss our racism as something else. I got a lot of interesting heat on social media several years ago for a column I wrote um, in which I mentioned that those of us who think political correctness somehow persecutes white men are blind to our own privilege. I just fundamentally believe that. Calling attention to racial issues and acknowledging the systemic race nature of, of racial issues is not racism. or It's racism when it comes from a position of power and protecting the status quo. It's truth otherwise. Uh, in the Gospels, when you look at Jesus, and then in the book of Acts, anti-racism is embedded in Jesus and the prophecy about Jesus and in the church everywhere. Back to the phrase, come to me all. I want to survey some of the readings in light of all this. There's, there's two parts to that phrase, and all means all. And it's about the person of Christ that transforms us and inclusivity across the board. So let's look in several places for this with that introduction. Let's look at Matthew chapters 11 through 13. We're in the readings. It says in chapter 11, when John heard in prison what the Messiah was doing, he sent word by the disciples and said to him, are you the one who is to come or are we to wait for another? Now notice what Jesus said. It says this, Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news brought to them. It's as if Christ is saying the priority of God is to do social work. So look at this and tell me God's not in this. And then if you read forward, he praises John the Baptist. And then after all that is when he says, come to me, all who are weary, the phrase we begin with. So the flow is, are you the one or should we wait to another? Christ says, do you not see my love for the least, the last, and the lost? Come to me, all who are weary. There it is, that balance. I hope you hear that in a new way when we put all that together. And then in Matthew chapter 12, it continues, of course. Of course, the religious elites don't like what Jesus is saying, both locating comfort in the person of Christ and it being for all people. The Pharisees start criticizing them immediately for picking grain on the Sabbath as they're walking through a field. Then there's the miracle of healing a man with withered hands. It's amazing to me how the Pharisees, all they notice is if to ignore the miracle that just happens, all they notice is the letter of the law, that Sabbath law. Now, here I notice something as we're thinking about this balance and this theme. Matthew theologizes on this resistance in Matthew 12. Uh, he casts it in terms of inclusivity. Okay, All these religious elites are criticizing them. And we're accustomed to Matthew saying that prophecy is fulfilled in Christ. That's his gift in the scripture. But notice it when he says, This was to fulfill what had been spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Here is my servant who have I him chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. Come to me all who are weary, including Gentiles. Now, 
Matthew continues talking about how in his name the Gentiles will hope, and the rest of the chapter is about the powers that be who are struggling to understand who Christ is and where that power comes from. But that above quote from Isaiah is how Matthew theologically ties this all together. Justice to the Gentiles is central to Christ's mission. The book of Acts is how the Spirit's pressing the early church to make that their core value. It's in Christ that we're drawn together, not nationality, not ethnicity, not religiosity, or any other cities for that matter. All that's embedded here. Now, as we shift gears, I think this balance of the call to personal relationship with Christ and social justice for all people to be included is also embedded in the Old Testament lessons. Uh, If we look back at Genesis chapter 16 and following, Chapter 16 of Genesis is about the birth of Isaac and Ishmael. From traditional understanding, this is all about the roots of Islam. It explains some of the prejudice against them that's played out over a long view of history. It says that Ishmael was a wild ass of a man and comes from Sarah's Egyptian slave girl. There's all sorts of reasons this makes us a little bit uncomfortable as we see it as a preview of history. But then in Genesis chapter 17, notice... God gives Abraham and Sarah new names. There's a sign of the covenant there, and that promises they'll be ancestors of a multitude. But that's a promise God first made to Ishmael. It's embedded in what we just read. And it's interesting that Ishmael's promise was first. I never noticed that until now. And then circumcision was set up as a sign of that covenant with Abraham and Sarah. And I think it's interesting that I never noticed this before, but in that scripture, it circles back. Abraham then intercedes for Ishmael and has only blessing in his heart for him. It says, Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Can a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Can Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael may live in your sight. God said, no, but your wife Sarah shall bear you a son, and you shall name him Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I've heard you. I will bless him and make him fruitful and exceedingly numerous. He shall be the father of twelve princes, and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac. Now, what separates them is the covenant. They will be my people. I will be their God. And interestingly, it says that Ishmael was circumcised under this covenant too. Now, wow. So, Israel's a covenant people, yes. And the new Israel in the church is a covenant people, yes. But God intends to bless all people. The setting for the gospel to emerge in salvation history is right here. And then in Genesis chapter 18, one of my favorite passages, three visitors come to visit Abraham and Sarah by the Oaks of Mamre. And there's this mystical experience that sort of in a right-brained way goes with that promise that God had made for that covenant. The three visitors show up and Sarah and Abraham busy themselves with curds and milk and killing a calf. And they hurried. There's this biblical hospitality, entertaining angels unaware. And it says they're three visitors. It doesn't say angels, but it says This is how the Lord appeared. What an interesting detail. We love this in Christianity because it foreshadows the Trinity. One of my favorite, possibly the favorite icon from 
Eastern tradition is the Rublev icon of the Trinity that interprets this scene of the three visitors uh, and as the three persons of God. And the Christ figure and the icon, I'm sure you've seen it, but if not, look it up. The Christ figure of the icon has his hand over the cup of blessing, and there's this roundedness to the table, and I always feel like I'm being drawn in. I realize there's a place at the table drawing me in to sit with the persons of the Trinity. I'm invited to the table, into communion with God, even me. All are welcome. And I read forward um, in this, um, uh, I read forward a little bit past this for the first time and notice with all that invitation, all that trust, all that visitation of Abraham, I, I realize what it represents when those three visitors then brought him in the know about Sodom and Gomorrah. And then the dance of intercession starts. Abraham starts a ministry of intercession with the three-in-one who covenanted with his family. So about Sodom and Gomorrah, what if there are 50 righteous down there? Well, you know, and he gets down to what if there's 10? He's apologetic and yet relentless, appealing to the mercies of God. And that's the dance of intercession. Now, I see this Abrahamic dance with the three visitors in context of this grand scheme of the gospel call to build bridges over the, all that separates us. And that's fulfilled and embodied in Christ, who said, come to me, all who are weary. Looking at one of the other sections of readings from Joshua, chapters 21 through 24, not going to spend as much time in it, but this is all details about settling the land that God promised to the Israelites. There's an exhortation of Joshua as an elderly man to those who had settled that they remain faithful to Yahweh. In the long view, we know that this set the stage for what is to come for Joshua's challenge failed and that people were led to exile because of their unfaithfulness. But it's fulfilled in Christ. He said, come to me all who are weary. The world will separate you and drive you apart. You come together in me. Uh, it's not about your racial or even religious heritage. It's about the one that Scripture calls the exact imprint of God's very being. Relationship with Christ draws radical inclusivity in the Bible together, pointing to him as the one who brings it all together. The Isaiah section of our reading from chapters 23 through 28 begins with impending judgment on the nations against Tyre. But I notice a section that read, in the path of your judgment, so Lord, we wait for you. Your name and your renown are the soul's desire. My soul yearns for you in the night. My spirit within me earnestly seeks you. And then it talks about Israel's redemption in the next section. I notice there's a yearning for God here and for justice and, uh, and intervention. That's the balance. Justice, yes. But personal relationship with Christ is what redeems us and embodies this desire, yes. It's personal holiness and social holiness. All this points to Christ. Even in the Romans passages we read, the couple of chapters we read, 9 and 10, it has this theme in it. What then are we to say? Gentiles who did not strive for righteousness have attained it. That is righteousness through faith. But Israel, who did strive for the righteousness based on the law, did not succeed in fulfilling that law. There's no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all and is generous to all who call on him, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. I'll kind of close these reflections with a story. Years ago, I was sitting at the table 
as a young pastor with another pastor who was not a Methodist elder. uh, It was an ecumenical setting. His theology was that before Jesus came, anybody could get into heaven. It was easy to get into heaven. But after Jesus came, you had to X, Y, Z to get into heaven. And that was just the way he phrased uh, the Old and New Testaments. And I said to him, I pressed him, I said, you know, it sounds like to me you're saying that Jesus closed the door of salvation. He said, yes, absolutely. I guess I was led just for once by the Holy Spirit to say, well, in my theology, it's exactly the opposite. Jesus blew the door wide open. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. Richard Rohr calls this amazing drawing of all things into him the cosmic Christ. John, the gospel writer, has Jesus saying, when the Son of Man is lifted up, he will draw all the world, the cosmos in the Greek, all the world to himself. Uh, John Wesley, when he was commenting in his scripture notes on Cornelius, who had sent word to Peter, mentioned that Cornelius apparently knew Christ, though he knew not his name. Eugene Peterson says Christ plays in 10,000 places. There's this expansiveness of Christ, who is our hope in these times of pandemic, of division, of turmoil, and of divisiveness. He says, come to me, all who are weary. You and I are weary. And he invites us to come. Let's pray together. God, you call us to both holiness and hospitality, to a faith of both heart and hands, to personal and social holiness. And when we look for it, it is sprinkled throughout all of your word. Because we read scripture knowing that it reveals the word of God who is Christ. It's been a hard couple of years, Lord, and we're tired. We're tired of COVID. We're tired of racial strife. We're tired of political divisiveness. And frankly, we're tired of each other. Help us to rest in you. And may we know that you are what brings hope and joy and peace and wholeness to this broken and divided world. In Jesus' holy name, amen.